We are anxious to get moving in this series, which is a terrific opportunity to understand what God's Word says in a, a new area. Let me open in prayer with you. Lord God, what a, a beautiful day that you have provided us, the, the freshness outside, the rain, the, the promise of spring, the beauty that you have created in, in our earth with uh, cycles and, and ways that we can uh, see your provision and see your faithfulness. And we look forward to seeing that through this campaign. We know that you are a faithful God, and I pray that we are faithful on our end, and we do as you have provided to us uh, exactly what it is that we're called by Scripture to do. May this lesson this morning help and to aid in that, to remind us, and to direct us towards serving you better. In your name, amen. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat just suddenly is giving me trouble here. Well, it's with great joy today that I get to introduce our new Sunday School topic on joyful generosity. And I get the double blessing of also starting the small groups simultaneously. Uh, as I stated last week, we're going to see how this goes. Uh, hopefully, we're going to grow deeper for our love for the Lord and our obedience to his word because of this extra hour prior to Steve's message. What prompted this Sunday School series it was a book by Gene Getz, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions. Although it was written in the 1990s, I believe Getz was noticing trends that have only become more pronounced today. As I read the preface and intro, I talked about the anti-institutional trends that were happening uh, and some of the forces that were putting pressure in society at those times, referring mainly to the Generation X that was coming up at that time in the 1990s. And we see these um, examples, these trends, even more pronounced through the millennial generation. Back when Getz did his study, he stated that baby boomers, those born from 1946 to 1964, gave almost nothing in, in any form to charity. And he paralleled that with the Christian community, which on average was giving about 2% of their income to further God's work. And slicing those numbers down, he found that only about 15% of the evangelical community gives 10% or more of their income to the church. Amazingly, he found that God's work was simply not a budget item for most Christians. They would give when they had a bit extra, but because they had not made it a priority to give first to God, when times got tough, when the economy tightened up, they had very little left over. They had car payments, boat payments, house payments, mortgages, other necessities. These investments in the pure enjoyment of life took everything they were earning to maintain. So I decided to do some research to understand the last four generations and their giving trends. This is a fascinating bunch of information that I actually could not find in my Bible. But I believe it has a bearing on the subject we're diving into. These are stats from 2015 Forbes magazine. Why is that not going? There we go. So first, the matures, I think that was the word that Forbes used for it, <clears throat> those born before 1946, of all the giving that is done to churches, 26% of it comes from that age bracket. The boomers, it's 43%, so now it's a large part of it, the boomers that are 1946 to 1964. Generation X now provides 20%, and the millennials, 11% of all the giving to churches. Of those groups, you can see the matures, 88% of the matures give. If they are in the church, they give. 72% of boomers give. 
59% of Generation X and 60% of Millennials. The average given, though, by the matures is $1,367 a year, which is about $26 a week. You can see the chart going down all the way, $1,212 for boomers, $732 for Generation X, and $481 for millennials. Additional stats to that, boomers, according to this chart, give $23 per week. That's $1,212 divided by 52 weeks, while millennials give $9 per week. The average Christian gives about 2.5% of their income back to charity. Now, to give you a comparison, back during the Great Depression, when everyone was on the street, there were soup lines, it was terrible, there was still an average of 3.3% giving back then. Only 3 to 5% of regular church attenders who give to their local church do it regularly. Very, very few, according to these stats from Forbes magazine, did it uh, regularly. Of families making 75000 per year, only 1% gave 10% or more to the church. 37% of regular church attenders and evangelicals <clears throat> gave zero to their local church. There was no giving from 37% of the people. 73% of church giving now happens uh, not on Sundays. Whoops, I guess you got them all in one. Uh, not on Sundays, but rather throughout the week, it's electronic debits. People have moved to that type of a giving. Um, and here's a surprising statistic. 49% of church giving is now done electronically, a card or some other form. So there's a lot of churches that make that available to them. Eight out of 10 people who give to their churches have zero credit card debt. I don't know if that's an advertisement for Dave Ramsey or something, but if you're not in debt, you have a much greater tendency to give to your church. Here's an interesting stat. Animal rights and environmental causes Remember, they used to be just that fringe amount of giving that was done uh, or fringe organizations. Figure for every 10 churches, there is about one being supported by animal rights giving. It's about 10% of what church giving is right now. I'm sorry, the one before that. The average evangelical Christian gives $817 per year to the church. Now, I want to give you a comparison. Muslims, $1,309. So for some reason, their organization, they give a lot more. I thought that would give a framework for some of what's going on. <clears throat> so what Gene Getz did, whoops, whatever, I got to hit the right button. There you go. What Gene Getz did in his book was to create a comprehensive study of money and giving in the Bible and then arrange these by topics. From there, he derived a number of principles that should guide us when we look at giving through a biblical lens. These principles relate to activities and directives, not to the forms or methodologies or patterns. By doing this, these correctly worded biblical principles we're going to be sharing over the next few weeks can be applied anywhere around the world, no matter what the cultural conditions at any time. We know them to be consistent throughout the word of God, whether it be the first century Christian church or now. The application then does not depend on the existence of certain economic structures or one, uh, one's status within the society or, or any other cultural factors. They don't, they don't affect these. To, der- to determine these principles, Getz had four criteria he looked at. And again, this is going to be a, a, a blanket over everything we're going to hear in the next weeks. One, we have to look at the totality of Scripture. Look at all Scripture related 
uh, to the subject. We know you cannot build an entire theology around a single verse. It must take into account all verses that speak to a particular subject. Otherwise, the principle might only be partially true or inaccurate. Secondly, he said, we must look at the actions and functions of God's people as they are described in Scripture to understand the context of the culture at that specific time. In Abraham's day, it would have been a very different context in the desert with comparing that to a similar event maybe that would have happened in modern Athens in a, in a big city. So there was, there was some things that would play into that within the, the context. We must look at all the teachings, number three, and the directives of Scripture. Look at all of them. Each one on the subject must be interpreted in its own biblical, historical, grammatical context. Here, hermeneutics is critical to understand what the actions mean that are being described in Scripture. Fourth, we must observe the extent to which New Testament activities and teachings are repeated, verified, expanded, and reinforced throughout the whole Bible as we look at these principles. We can't use Scripture to support our own personal agendas using an eisegesis method rather than an exegesis. We don't want to approach Scripture with an idea and then try to fit it into our little box to support our claim. So really, it's over the next 12 weeks we're going to be covering these principles using these interpretive criteria, all related to the topic of giving. We're going to have a number of us doing the teaching, so you're going to get many different perspectives, but they all are driven from principles of Scripture extrapolated really through some of the thoughts here that we're using as a guide. And Getz, as a guide, works through all the main passages of the New Testament, plucking out these principles as they appear in the patterns there. So don't be surprised. We're going to keep going back to a lot of the same verses throughout the different people who are teaching. There's 126 different passages that he extrapolates here. Uh, I'm sorry, principles. But we're putting them into essentially 12 different categories. Small group leaders, don't be freaked out that I just said 12 weeks. We're going to go through 12 weeks of this. We're not asking for them, your small groups, for 12 weeks, although we may make some changes or reevaluate as we go through this to see if the small groups are adding a lot of reinforcement here. So let's get started on our first topic, and that is modeling giving, modeling giving. Scripture has many wonderful examples where we see modeled giving These not only show us how giving occurred, but also they set an example for future churches to follow, especially the leaders of the church in our church. First principle, number one, is that spiritual leaders should model the way all Christians use their material possessions. Spiritual leaders should model the way all Christians should use their material possessions. Let me read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We all know the context of Acts chapter 2. Christ had just ascended into heaven. The apostles, by following Christ to this point, had already demonstrated well that they were willing to sacrifice financially. They were not asking others to do what they themselves were not already doing. 
Peter further demonstrates this in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. When he asked for, he's asked for a contribution by a crippled beggar in the temple, he responds that neither gold nor silver do I have, or John doesn't have. He literally had left all. Peter had left all to follow Christ. Both he and John probably gave up a rather productive fishing business to follow Christ and fish for men instead. Each of the other's disciples likely had stories of how they had to sacrifice to follow Christ. Barnabas was another one. We, know, we don't know where he obtained his income or what he had as possessions, but he also, without being asked, gave of his material possessions. The end of Acts 4 tells us of him selling a piece of land and giving the proceeds to the church. This was a model that others copied too. In the Old Testament, we see David as a great example of this. In fact, he shared with the entire assembly specifically what he was going to do. First Chronicles 28.1 says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, the stewards of the property, livestock. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, O brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for the building. He gathered them all around, and he told them what specific plans he had for the temple, and he shared that God would not let him build this temple. He was passing that project on to his son Solomon. Then he went on to share his personal uh, amount that he was going to give out of his own pocket in the next chapter. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver. This is no small gift he gave. In modern day dollars, that would be $5 billion he gave. I was shocked. 112 tons of gold and 260 tons of silver. That's a gift. Take that. Do you think the people knew that David was serious about building the temple? Heck yeah. First Chronicles 29 goes on to say that the people responded and they gave willingly to the work of the Lord towards the building of the temple. David, as a model visible to the people, encouraged them to respond freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. If you review the whole of Scripture, you can't find a single verse, a single example, where this principle would not be true. Our first principle, again, spiritual leaders should model the way all Christians should use their material possessions. Second principle, it is the will of God that Christians share their material possessions in order to encourage others in the body of Christ. It is the will of God that Christians share their material possessions in order to encourage others in the body of Christ. The key word here is encourage. As I mentioned Barnabas earlier in Acts chapter 4. Let me read that. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed as each had any need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joe here, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, was nicknamed Barnabas because he was so encouraging. We see him later as being the guy who comes alongside Paul when he's trying to reach out to the Jerusalem church. 
after he'd been persecuted, after he had persecuted the church and had been converted. But here's one of the first things we've heard of this guy who encourages others by his gift of generosity to assist those who are likely displaced because of their faith in Christ. People who are generous are special encouragers, not only to other Christians, but to God himself. At Grace Bible, I remember specifically getting a call from Mark late on January 2013 one time. We were a struggling church at the time. Our numbers were few, and we had some mileposts. We were watching to see if it was even viable if Grace Bible would survive. We had called Steve to be our pastor, but really didn't know how we would pay for him long term. Back in in the prior November, I had stated that if we could make it through January 31st, we would know that the Lord was in this work that he would be, it would be God intervening to cause this. And on the phone as I was driving, and I still remember the exact spot on the 118 freeway where I was, Mark told me we had received a check for over $10,000 from one of our members. I had to pull over. I was crying. I could not believe it. Wow, God, you are so good. And the timing was phenomenal. That was a phenomenal encouragement to someone who had no idea the impact that, that it would have on our church. Look through scripture and you're going to see it confirms it is the will of God that Christians share their material possessions in order to encourage others in the body of Christ. Third principle today is Christians need to be able to observe other believers who are faithful in sharing their material possessions. I know this runs counterintuitive to the way we like to keep confidentiality, but we cannot deny that Barnabas's gift was fully visible to the church members. Otherwise, Ananias and Sapphira would not have tried to attempt the same thing, but with the wrong motives. And David, in the story about him, he went as far as summoning everyone to announce his gift. Paul used the generosity of the Christians in Achaia to motivate the Macedonian believers in 1 Corinthians 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Your zeal stirred up most of them. Okay, there's a disclaimer here. Matthew 6, 3 and 4 says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think we have to look at it in that context. So does that verse I just read in Matthew, does that say we should only give in secret and not publicly? Let me give you a a few considerations when you interpret this passage. First, this command is a hyperbole to make a point. Taken at face value, it would infer that the person giving had no idea what they are giving. This would be similar to a few verses back when Christ said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's a hyperbole. Secondly, if we take the concept of giving in secret, we should also look at the next passage in Matthew 6 that teaches when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. If Jesus was teaching that all giving should be done in secret, then we must conclude by the next set of verses we should only pray in secret so we're not seen or heard. That would contradict all kinds of other passages. Thirdly, what did Jesus actually practice and promote? Jesus never condemned people giving in public. When the poor widow put her simple mite into the temple treasury, he used her as an example to demonstrate sacrificial giving of those who were watching. Fourth, look at the historical and cultural setting. Many of the religious leaders were the wealthiest people in all of Israel. They would parade their wealth in front of others. Matthew 6, 2 says they would announce it with a trumpet when they gave to the poor. 
<clears throat> their motivation was to be honored by man. This was not motivated by love for the poor, but driven by self-exaltation. Christ was addressing their motives here, not the method of their giving. So our third principle we just looked at, Christians need to be able to observe other believers who are faithful in sharing their material possessions. The fourth principle, God's plan for Israel in the Old Testament serves as a foundational model regarding the way Christians should view and use their material possessions today. God's plan for Israel in the Old Testament serves as a foundational model regarding the way Christians should view and use their material possessions today. Those who made up the first church in Jerusalem took their religion very, very seriously. For many of them, they had traveled a long distance to obey the laws of coming to the temple at Passover to bring their annual offering. They saw the events around Christ's death and resurrection. They heard the apostles' teaching They would have confirmed what they knew of the Old Testament teaching, and they then became followers of Christ. At Pentecost, we know there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, is what it says, according to Acts 2. This was a common term that means they were doing all they could to keep the Old Testament laws, and this included three different tithing systems. I'm sure Steve will get into this at some point. Uh, The first one, a tenth of their yearly harvest and flocks to support the Levites and priests, Second tenth, known as the festival tithe, to be set apart, taken to Jerusalem. If they could not bring their harvest and their flocks, they could exchange it for money, but there was added a 20% exchange rate, according to Leviticus 27.31. And a third tithe was a charity tithe, a tenth to be given every third year, designated for widows and strangers and the fatherless. In addition, they were to pay a temple tax, which is what we see in Matthew 17, referred to when the tax collectors approached Peter and asked if Jesus had paid his tax. This tax was paid annually by all Jews around the entire world. It contributed to the commerce of Jerusalem. So now these God-fearing Jews would have transferred their loyalty from the Old Testament Judaism to Christianity. They were in a habit of giving regularly and systematically. So they understood Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 16.1. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. I have minimal amount of time, so I'm going to move through the last points quickly here. Number five, every local body of believers needs real-life examples of other churches that are positive models in the area of giving. Every local body of believers needs real-life examples of other churches that are positive models in the area of giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2 covers this well. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy, or in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul was sharing with the Corinthian church what the church in Macedonia Macedonia was doing. The Corinthian church was not having their walk match their talk. They had said they would help support the church in Jerusalem, but they hadn't stepped up to the plate yet. They needed to. Principle six, Christians who are generous will motivate other Christians to also be generous. At our celebration banquet, lunch for Steve, bidding started out at $25, quickly went up to $26. And, uh, but then someone stepped up and made up to 300 bucks. Whoa, that's generous. That was really cool. And it went up from there. That was encouraging. Second Corinthians 9, 2, we see a similar situation. 
For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. Paul knows what he was doing here. That's also why this was recorded in Scripture. This whole passage was to show us a model of encouraging others in a similar way. Christians who have not been taught how to give or have been taught and are yet unresponsive need to see other Christians enthusiastically use their material possessions to further the work of God's kingdom. They need to observe joyful giving so they might respond with the same enthusiasm. I can tell you, you can't outgive God. I've tried to give what I could out of the abundance of my heart, and God just gives it back. It's been amazing that joy that you get as part of it. This causes others to praise God and worship him. Just a few verses later, we read, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By the approval of this of their serv- this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Sure, there's always going to be those who sit on the sides, they're critical, they have a negative word towards giving. This often shows that they're unhappy with others who give because it reveals their own lack of generosity. Principle six out of 1 Timothy 3.2 Spiritual leaders in the church should be generous Christians who are willing to use their material possessions to serve those they shepherd and lead. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. This doesn't mean church leaders must be affluent, but they should be willing to share what they have to minister to others within the church. This also has to be balanced so they don't neglect their own families. Otherwise, they would violate other qualifications. This word hospitable has a broad context. It means bringing others into your home. It means having a generous heart. But it also does not mean foolishly giving away your assets to those who are irresponsible. This would be a person who has the qualities of wisdom and discernment who the church wants to have as a leader. If we desire to be spiritual leaders in the church... We should elevate this principle carefully and what it means in our particular cultural situation. It's possible to apply this principle without, is it possible to apply this without being intimidated by those who have more money and have large homes and things like that? Can you do that? It's easy with people, people with less material items often to be more susceptible to an unjustifiable intimidation. There should not be any. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. So one of the qualifications of being a leader in the church is being able to properly handle this type of responsibility, to be an example of giving out of our heart in a way that's hospitable, commensurate with what God has given us, as well as not being intimidated by others who might be more affluent and able to give more. This is how leaders model giving. Okay, so we're now going to break into small groups as we did last week. And we have some discussion questions for you to better understand these principles. If you don't have a group, you weren't here last week, I want you to meet in the back center right in front of the uh, sound booth, and I will assign you to a, uh, to a group. But you're welcome to split up in your groups now. Hope that's a good start.